0: Hello, and welcome to Listen In, a podcast about the people, movements, and events that made the Spanish Civil War a part of Canada's cultural and political history. Today, Kevin Lavange will be hosting the episode, and he'll be talking about Canadian volunteers' experience of the Spanish Civil War, especially their experience of the scarcity of resources that the Republican Army and its allies had to deal with. So let's get started. <music> Hello, and welcome to another episode of Listen In. My name is Kevin Lavangi and I'm coming to you from the Toronto Reference Library, home to some great materials related to the Spanish Civil War, including a reference copy of D.P. Stevens's A Memoir of the Spanish Civil War, an Armenian-Canadian in the Lincoln Battalion. It's worth a visit if you're in the area. In our previous episodes, we've given some background on the organizational structure of the International Brigades in Spain, and some details about the travel to and from Spain by the volunteers. Today we're offering a closer look at the physical conditions faced by the volunteers in Spain, including their diet, their equipment, their training, lodging, and so on. Much of what you'll hear today shares a lot in common with other war narratives or histories. Other than its unusual composition of communists, socialists, and non-aligned leftists from around the world, the day-to-day lives of the soldiers of the international brigades would have been familiar in many ways to the veterans of previous wars. Like other armies, their units were afflicted with bad supplies, occasionally incompetent commanders, difficulties in collaborating with other language groups, troubles with drinking and discipline, and so on. As a whole, though, the experience of fighting for the Republicans in Spain was characterized by scarcity in a greater way than most other armies. This was because of the non-intervention pact, the underdevelopment of the Spanish industrial base, and the isolation that the Spanish Republic experienced from the international community as a whole. Obviously, what we present here is a series of generalizations about the experience of Canadians, and specifically the MACPAPs, in Spain. The experience of a MACPAP in Spain is difficult to distill, given the wildly different situations that they found themselves in throughout the war. Conditions changed dramatically, as the Republican fortunes waxed and waned, and as military policy changed considerably. For example, In the section on rations, I refer mostly to what the volunteers ended up eating throughout the war, not what they would have subsisted on as they fought in the frigid and poorly supplied Battle of Teruel. Another important thing to keep in mind when considering the Republican army in Spain is that the early stages of the coup attempt saw the Republican government reluctantly agree to arm the workers and the trade unions, who then formed themselves into militias. The mid to late stages of the civil war saw the government centralize command of the loyal armed forces. This history, and the aid of the USSR in professionalizing and modernizing the Spanish military, influences much of what you'll hear about here. As an aside, the experiences of the Canadians in the blood transfusion unit in Spain were also colored by these developments. Some have attributed Bethune's departure to his inability to integrate himself into the newly built bureaucracy, saying he was much better suited for the more freewheeling environment of the early conflict. Because most Canadians didn't arrive in Spain until mid-1937, the majority of Canadians experienced the war as a part of a professional, if somewhat unorthodox, army. There are some notable exceptions. Tomo Ciacic, who was born in Yugoslavia but lived in Canada for a number of years, traveled to Spain from the USSR and fought with partisan units behind the lines. He stayed until the end of the war and fled to France, where he was imprisoned by the French government alongside thousands of other refugees. Listen In covered his story in detail in episode 1.7, titled A Difficult Prisoner. Canadian Bill Williamson arrived in Spain on the day of the attempted coup and ended up serving in a few hastily organized militias before joining the internationals. William Krem was a Trotskyist in Canada during the 1930s and would go on to fight with the Pum in Spain. We'll likely talk more about their experiences in future episodes. We'll start with an overview of the circumstances of travel to Spain. We've mentioned this a bit in past episodes, but there were a variety of ways that volunteers traveled to the country in the first place. This is true even when setting aside the different methods of recruitment and planning. Many first crossed the border into the U.S. and headed to a port on the eastern seaboard, usually New York. Others would sail from Montreal, or the main east coast ports of St. John, New Brunswick, or Halifax, Nova Scotia. The landing in France was most common, where volunteers would spend a few days in Paris as the organizers waited to group enough volunteers together to send them over the Spanish border. As always, their presence was sort of an open secret. The trip to Europe was the easy part as even in the face of the hostility of the Canadian government to their plans, most volunteers got their passports and travel documents in order. The passports were specifically marked not valid for Spain, so many of the unemployed or obviously working-class men pretended to be sailing to Paris to visit the 1937 World Fair. Getting into Spain in the face of the Non-Interventions Committee's patrols was more complicated. The French land border with Spain was closed to the volunteers, which led to the most famous and perilous method of getting to Spain, climbing the Pyrenees. Victor Horr writes that the majority of the 40,000 international volunteers arrived in Spain in this way, waiting nervously at the base of the mountains before setting out at night to avoid the French border patrols and guided by local guides. It seems likely that in this task, as in some others throughout the war, the comparative lack of industrialization in Canada meant that the Canadian volunteers were better suited for the climb than their American comrades. Regardless, a nighttime climb over the Pyrenees while dressed like a transatlantic traveler complete with cheap suit cheap shoes and cheap briefcase was not a pleasant undertaking some volunteers lost or destroyed their shoes during this initial trial by fire and did not get another decent pair for the length of their time in spain others were lucky enough to come by some of the famous basque rope sandals that were better suited for the terrain that being said if you could make it over the mountains shoes or not your reward was often to wait in a castle or convent with poor sanitary facilities while you waited to be formed into a unit And while this trip sounds perilous enough, the presence of German and Italian submarines, ships and bombers in the Mediterranean made the prospect of sailing from France to Spain even less appealing. And one of the greatest cases of the fox guarding the hen house I can think of, some of these fascist ships were ostensibly engaged in the non-intervention patrols that were organized by the League of Nations, which made an even greater mockery of the committee. For a first-hand account of these trips to Spain, we have a digitized copy of Joe Dalit's Letters from Spain available on our website, in which he recounts the arrest and release of a number of international volunteers by the French authorities. It's especially interesting to see in this piece how sympathetic a large section of the French population was to the volunteers' goals. For those who did make it to Spain, the training that they received after their arrival varied considerably depending on the timing of their arrivals. The earliest Canadian volunteers had no choice but to attach themselves to units of a variety of nationalities, and as a result, it's somewhat difficult to generalize what sort of training they received. We do know that a number of the first volunteers who arrived in and around April 1937 found themselves quickly sent to Villanueva de la Jara with their American comrades. They were equipped and given very basic training before heading off to the Jarama Valley to defend Madrid. A shortage of ammunition meant that some volunteers fired only a handful of shots before heading into battle for the first time. Later, though, volunteers were better prepared. For the first few months after its formation in the summer of 1937, the new mackenzie Papineau Battalion was defined by its enthusiasm and commitment to training. The three months of training they received and insisted on completing at Tarazona far surpassed what other battalions were put through. The reasons for this can be a little difficult to parse, but we can at least partially attribute this to the fact that the MACPAPs weren't organized as a unit until well into 1937, by which time the Spanish Republican military apparatus had been more professionalized and centralized. The enthusiasm of the green MACPAPs wasn't appreciated by the more veteran soldiers in the Lincolns and the Dimitrovs with whom they shared a camp. One morning, when the Lincolns were greeted with the customary bugle call to Reveille, they responded by taking the bugle and running it over in the motor pool. Everyone slept an hour later the next day. The popularity of officers was at times quite directly linked to their Reveille policies. Wake up was at 5 a.m. under Robert Merriman, and his replacement, Roland Dart, an American who had served in the U.S. Army Air Corps, was well-liked if only because he moved wake up to 6 a.m. That both of these men were from the U.S. should be of note here as well. One organizational feature that was frustrating to the Canadians was that few of their own were in positions of authority within the brigade, even after it was renamed the mackenzie papineau Battalion. Irving Weissman, a U.S. political commissar, later said, We didn't have any goddamn Canadian officers. When I look back at it, I think we betrayed an enormous amount of chauvinism. The leadership, both political and military, of the MacPaps was overwhelmingly American. We did not work in such a way to go and recognize the leadership of Canadians, and they were just as good as we were." This is something of an overstatement, as Ed Cecil Smith became the commander of the MACPAPs, and Nico Mackella of Timmins became the leader of the machine gun company. But for the most part, the majority of the MACPAPs officers were from the U.S. It's important not to overstate the prevalence and severity of patronizing anti-Canadian attitudes on the part of the Americans. We should consider how the Canadian experience of marginalization within the 15th Brigade was nothing compared to what racialized Americans and those living in the U.S.'s neo-colonies, including African Americans and Cubans, experienced. What we can resolve here is that while the international brigades was considerably less racist than the armies of its constituent countries, prejudice didn't simply disappear within the ranks. This long digression also obscures the fact that, for the most part, the relations between Canadians and Americans were fine, though the fact that the Canadians skewed older and more working class than the Americans led to at least one Canadian calling his American comrades New York ice cream boys. This alarmed the Canadian communist leader Jack Taylor enough that he mentioned it in a letter to the Communist Party of Spain's Central Committee. We can also note that another explanation for the overrepresentation of Americans in the 15th Brigade hierarchy is that even after it was named the Mackenzie-Papineau Battalion, it was dominated by Americans three to one. And then later, the battalion came to be heavily populated with Spanish draftees after they stopped recruiting in North America. So while the leadership was occasionally cause for complaint, the rations the soldiers received was a larger source of unhappiness. When you read some of the personal accounts of the volunteers, the poor quality of the food quickly becomes apparent. Mark Zulke writes. Daily rations consisted of a handful of rice, a quarter cup of olive oil, and a liter of wine. Salaries sometimes went towards supplementing this fare with garlic, chard, peppers, and other vegetables. When available, Mess Hall served three meals, usually the infamously burned barley coffee for breakfast and a slice of bread. The other meals were usually rice fried in olive oil, sometimes with or replaced by chickpeas. Meat only occasionally was served when it could be begged, borrowed, or stolen and it was often mule or something else that many were unaccustomed to eating. There was also often salted cod, which Silky writes was particularly hated by the Canadians, even if it had been fished from the waters off the coast of the Maritime Provinces, or the then British colony of Newfoundland. The specifics of shelter throughout the war are even more varied than those of food. At times, the soldiers were stationed in large, old church buildings or in camps made up of tents. Regardless of the shelter, though, lice was always a problem, and volunteer Ron Liversedge notes that the country was so dry it was often difficult to wash up. Two specific instances stand up as the worst accommodations that the Macpaps found in Spain. At Teruel in late 1937 and early 1938, the volunteers held out in trenches, making what could be best described as sort of blanket forts while they huddled for warmth. Getting warmer was a mixed blessing though, as it would sometimes make the lice more active. A few months later, in spring 1938, The 15th Brigade had been badly depleted, and the IBs were no longer recruiting. Already with low morale, the Canadians and Americans were sheltered in ramshackle huts made of branches as it poured rain. As you imagine, the combination of the low quality of food and low quality of shelter meant that the general health of the volunteers was low. Dysentery was rampant, as were any other number of health problems, including pneumonia. The quality and amount of food also meant that support from home was especially welcome. The Canadian fundraising efforts included an attempt to send care packages to the Canadians in Spain at Christmas time, furnished with chocolate, cigarettes, socks, and so on. The logistical challenges of getting these packages to the correct volunteers were considerable when you understand that the Canadians were spread out across the country, and not all of them were in a single unit. The unenviable task of getting the packages where they needed to be fell to Ron Liversedge. He got half the packages delivered to the men serving with the Macpaps by working his way to their rear lines and then bribed and talked his way into the delivering the majority of the other packages to the rightful recipients. He said that by the end, he distributed the 200 that remained among other nationalities. Uniforms and equipment were also sparsely distributed because of shortages. In fact, to even speak of a uniform within the International Brigades is somewhat of a misnomer, as a variety of factors made the clothing worn by the volunteers anything but standard. In some cases, you were lucky to be in possession of a decent pair of boots, so little attention was given to whether they were standardized from soldier to soldier. By the time the MACPAPs were headed for their first battle at Fuentes de Ebro, they were mostly outfitted like the rest of the 15th Brigade, with a hip-length blouse called a casadora in various shades of khaki. This uniform looked something like a bomber jacket. Others wore a full-length pre-war wool tunic, and most wore either knee-length pants and the leg wraps called putties, or fairly baggy pants that were gathered at the ankle. There were lots of accounts of brown corduroy being a popular Republican choice for clothing. Brays were often the hat of choice, either black, brown, or khaki. Although there were also a number of what were called Paso montana woolen caps that could be folded down to cover the face, but were typically worn slightly askew and folded up something like a toque with a little beak or brim peeking at the front. It's hard to find pictures of them online, so my major source for this information was a book titled The International Brigades in Spain, 1936-1939, to written by Ken Bradley and illustrated by Mike Chappelle. It's filled with pictures and drawings of all the Brigade's clothing. You can find it in PDF form online. The book includes a drawing of the MacPap's own Ed Cecil Smith as well. Helmets were among the few things that the French Popular Front government sent to Republican Spain in late 1936, reminiscent of the non-lethal military aid you sometimes hear about being sent today. These Adrian helmets, as they were called, were popular in their various models with the Republicans, and specifically the International Brigades. The helmets look quite a bit like the German helmets that many of us are familiar with from World War II. And so it can be a bit confusing when looking at pictures of battles. Sometimes the Republicans would paint either a five-pointed or three-pointed red star on the front of the helmet, though the extent to which this happened is somewhat unclear. Summer wear was mostly the same as winter, comprised of whatever you could get your hands on. It often included the famous rope sandals or sneakers. Many find themselves wearing these rope-soled shoes in the winter as well, and the stories of the Battle of Teruel from December 1937 to February 1938 in the mountains are miserable. They were underdressed for the cold of the winter, and were underfed and undersupplied for the weeks of fighting. A lot of accounts are sure to mention that many officers and political commissars in the International Brigades took their appearances very seriously, typically outfitting themselves in a black or dark blue beret with rank patch, black leather bomber jacket, and, most importantly, a Sam Brown leather belt and holster for a pistol. The quality and type of weapons varied nearly as much as that of the uniforms. As we've noted before, we're not historians, and certainly not military historians, so it'll suffice to say that the Republicans could not easily or illegally buy even small arms on the international markets, so they made do with old weapons from a variety of sources, including both surplus and new Soviet and Mexican rifles. The mix of calibers and parts made supplying them with ammunition and spare parts a nightmare throughout the war. The example of what they called the ski rifles illustrates pretty well how absurd the supply chains for some of these guns were. The rifles were made in the U.S. for the Tsarist army in World War I. They were then sold to Mexico by the USSR, and then sent to Spain from Mexico 20 years later. The Lincolns ended up with some of them at Harama, and Liversedge notes that the MACPAPs had them until quite late in the war, when they were replaced with Czech rifles from the Skoda works. This was certainly a welcome change. The famous Finnish machine-gun battalions were frequently photographed using Soviet-made Maxim heavy machine guns. Other photographs show the volunteers relaxing in a variety of ways. Like in any other army, there was a great deal of waiting around in mud punctuated by enemy attacks. In between actions, these soldiers certainly read more of the daily worker than those in other armies. Still, reading materials were often scarce. And one brigadista named Yorkie Burton observed, after receiving a number of newspapers that were in Greek and Russian, what the hell did they send us this crap for, with its upside-down M's and sideways W's? Radio was a more reliable source of news and entertainment, when a broadcast in the appropriate language could be found. Sports were another welcome source of distraction. And Petru's Renegades includes an excellent photo portrait of the MacPaps soccer team from 1938. During the stalemate at Harama, Victor Horror writes that the volunteers played ping-pong and baseball in addition to soccer behind the lines. There was also a lot of drinking, and a number of the volunteers took to the Spanish habit of drinking wine with meals with particular relish. My favorite scene in the National Film Board's Los Canadienes documentary about the Macpaps shows how well-practiced the volunteers became at drinking out of a wineskin. This certainly would have paired well with the music and singing, which was an important pastime for all the brigadistas as evidenced by a picture in renegades of one brigadista resting under a tree in a valley with an accordion. Mac Papp, Paddy O'Dare of Saskatoon, had become known for having written a number of working-class songs in Canada, including When Mounties Eyes Are Smiling, and he almost certainly brought these songs with him to Spain. Even today, compilations of songs of the Spanish Civil War remain quite popular among a certain set, particularly Pete Seeker's Songs of the Lincoln Battalion from 1943. My personal favorite song associated with the war is the marching song of the German Thalmann Battalion, called the Peat Bog Soldiers. As Seeger says in his introduction to his recording of the song, it was written in a Nazi concentration camp by interned socialists and communists, and it went on to become one of the most popular republican songs associated with the war. We can finish here with a first-hand account from the Canadian author Hugh Gardner, who provides some insight into the life in the trenches in Harama in March 1937. Though this took place before the formation of the MacPaps, it addresses a number of the topics discussed above. 6:10 a.m. I wake up cold and wet. Last night the fascists tried to launch a surprise attack during a hailstorm. As soon as their rifle volleys began cracking, we were ordered to stand to in the trench. I was reclining on my blanket in my dugout at the time, and when I heard one of our group shout, "Come on, boys!" I rushed headlong into the rain. My tunic was off. I jammed on my helmet, slung on my bandolier, picked up my rifle and ran along the communication trench to our machine gun. In my haste to get up to the trench, I dragged my tunic in the rain and stepped on the inside of it with a muddy boot. What a mess. I did not notice it until it had become soaked with rain. My letters fell from the pocket and were mud-stained and wet. After the attack had been thwarted, I returned to my dugout, soaked to the skin, and with my boots and trousers caked with yellow clay. Consequently, I asked someone who was passing if the coffee had arrived yet. He answered no, so I turned over in my blanket. At this time, I was fully clothed, including boots and overcoat, and closed my eyes to try to sleep some more. 7.15 a.m., breakfast time. The boys have brought up bread, butter, coffee, and oranges. The sun is trying to shine a little now. We gather in a group and spread the butter over the bread. We eat it while we crack jokes about the night before and kid one of the boys about the fascist that he claims to have shot. We smoke a welcome-after-breakfast cigarette, and I go back to my dugout to read a New York Daily Worker for a while. I finish reading and lie, thinking about writing this synopsis. 7.45 a.m. I go to the gun to stand my morning guard. I clean and oil my rifle and refill my bullet clips. The sky is cloudy. Two of my comrades come out and begin cleaning the machine gun. I talk to a Spanish comrade who is wreathed in smiles. His wife has just given birth to Dos picuanos. Two Boy Twins, A Real Excuse for Parental Pride. I smoke a few cigarettes and chat with a fellow from the British Battalion. Garner continues that evening. 6.30 p.m. Up the path from the kitchen comes a caravan of food carriers, harbingers of goodwill, bringers of everlasting joy. They bear on their shoulders, baskets full of the staff of life, Dixies full of aromatic soup, and a wonderful stew of potatoes, carrots, beans, and canned meat. There are oranges and a little chocolate for each man, and coffee, a packet of cigarettes. We eat again very heartily. I trade my cigarettes for a package of French tobacco. It lasts much longer. 7 p.m. The radio begins playing dance music from Lyon, France. Some of the boys put on impromptu concerts. The card games get going again. Candles are lighted in some of the dugouts. I read the news on the bulletin board. There is a humorous sheet written and typed by the boys. I sit down and listen to the radio. A crooner sings, The way you look tonight. He's telling me. That's it for another episode of Listen In. Thanks for listening. Today's episode of Listen In was written and produced by Kevin Levangi and supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Our intro theme song was Libertad by Iriarte and Pozoa from the Free Music Archive. And our credits music was Letter from Bilbao by The Lowest of the Low. I'll be out of town for a couple weeks, so expect a break in the lesson and schedule. And you'll be hearing from us again in late August.